0: For your amazing grace, Uh, we thank you that it does set us free. Father, we pray that as we look at uh, your word this morning, and and particularly at the book of Galatians, Father, we pray that by your spirit you will transform our hearts. Father, we pray that you'll convict us where we need conviction. You'll encourage us where we need encouragement. You'll comfort us where we need comfort. Lord, we thank you that your word is just an inexhaustible source of truth. We praise you for that, and as we look at this morning, Lord, we pray that uh, in return we'll worship you, worship you with obedient lives. So we just pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are visiting today, uh, we have been going through the book of Galatians as a a series and a, a and a study, and we're going to continue that today. And uh, it's a, it's a wonderful book because it's a book about freedom. It addresses issues of legalism. It addresses issues of trying to add to the gospel, and uh, for want of a better word, dumb it down uh, to a man centered approach to life. And this morning we are going to continue in a in a part of the book in chapter 4 but just by way of introduction I think we need to just understand the context of where we've been and where we are going because it's quite a complex argument. Chapters 3 and 4 of Galatians are probably some of the most con, uh, sort of convoluted complex arguments in the New Testament and I think it's good to just Think through um, where we're at. We have a major purpose statement in the book of Galatians. Yeah, by all means, if you haven't got a Bible, please go grab one over here. And this was discussed uh, several weeks ago. At the start of Galatians, you have this, uh, this charge by Paul to these folks. You've moved away from the gospel. You've deserted quickly to another story. And then he goes on and he he talks about his own ability as an apostle and his own rights to preach the gospel to them. And he summarizes that at the end of chapter 2. And he says this, Yet you know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And further down in verse 19, he says this, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the major purpose of the book. And what he does through chapters 3 and 4 as he starts to dig a little bit deeper into this statement. He firstly digs into the fact that you are justified by faith. So he starts wrestling with that issue. And then he also digs into the fact that you now live for Christ. I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he grabs these two principles of justification by faith and what it means to live in Christ and the balance of the book of Galatians deals with one of those two issues. As our Longnecker has said, this passage in reality is not only the hinge between what has gone before and what follows, but actually the central affirmation of the letter. Salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone. Salvation includes justification, the point in time in which we are saved. That marvellous point in time when God calls us. June testified to that. That point in time when God calls us into his kingdom by his grace. That's justification. But hey, you and I, we live in this earth. We have the issues of walking by the Spirit or walking by the flesh daily in our lives. And the sanctification process is this whole issue of I'm now no longer living for myself, but I've been crucified with Christ. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith. And grace in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this is the main argument and then as we've heard over the last couple of weeks from Galatians 3.1 to 4.7, we've heard the argument starting to be explained. So what does it mean to be justified by faith? What does it mean to live a life that is a life of faith? And uh, in the first part, you just might just want to turn to the start of chapter 3 and I'll just summarise very briefly the argument to date. Firstly, Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? If this was an Aussie colloquialism, we'd say, You dim-witted Galatians. We might say something different, but I'll use dim-witted here, because that's uh, a bit more savoury. But that's what he's really saying. Why, why are you so dull on hearing? he previously said to them, Because you've deserted so quickly your spiritual turncoats, and then he says, You're dull of hearing. What about your own personal experience? Did you not receive the Spirit by grace, by faith? And that was the the, the argument from personal experience. Of course you received your salvation by grace and faith. And the second part, he argues from Abraham's life. And he says, Abraham was justified by faith because he believed God. He believed the promise that God was going to give him and it was counted to him as righteousness. So you have the argument from personal experience. You have been saved. You have an argument from a, the father of the nation. Then you have an argument from the curse of the law, which basically goes like this. The law cannot justify, it can only bring judgment. Therefore, grace is superior to the law. Then you have an argument from the permanence of faith. In verse uh, 15 to 18 of chapter 3, where the content of that argument was, hey, this promise came 430 years before the law. The promise to Abraham came at that period of time. Therefore, grace is superior to the law. So the argument's being built from your personal experience. You are saved by faith. Grace is superior to the law. Abraham lived before the law and lived by faith. Therefore, grace is superior to the law. The law cannot justify it, it only brings judgment. Therefore grace is superior to the law. The fifth argument is the purpose of the law, the argument from the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was never to save. This purpose has always been to be a standard that would show us the magnitude of our sin. And Mike touched on that last week. That was the law. The law put some constraints around about us to to show that uh, this is how far you're from God. But the purpose was never to save us. But grace leads us to Christ. The law was only a temporary measure. It was a guardian. They were the terms that we used until faith in Christ was inaugurated. Therefore, this argument concludes, like the other arguments, grace is superior to the law. And then there was the argument from the believer's present position, where God's grace gives to us through faith Sonship. Heirship. It unites us. There's no Jew or Gentile. It's all one in Christ. And you know what? The law never brought this vertical and horizontal relationship. The law could never do that. It never could bring the Jew and Gentile together. Only grace... And faith through the Lord Jesus Christ can bring us together. And that's a wonderful truth. And so once again, this argument concludes with the fact that grace is superior to the law. And then we have the argument from sonship in the start of chapter 4. And... uh This argument shows that by grace you have this privileged position. A privileged position that sees and causes you to be redeemed. A position that sees you as adopted into the family of God. A position that sees you as no longer a slave, but a son and an heir awaiting all the inheritance that God will give. And not only that, the Spirit of God dwells within. The Spirit of God dwells within to shape and refine and and encourage us to live for Him. So can you see what Paul is doing here? He's made his statement. He's saying, you are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ that lives in you. Now life, you live in the flesh, you live by the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you as a grace gift. And then he goes into these seven odd arguments. Bearing in mind, who is he speaking to? Initially, he's speaking to the church in Galatia, right? What do we know about that church from our previous studies? Paul had evangelized them. We're only talking probably somewhere in the vicinity of a year after they had been saved. He had evangelized them, but then we know that a certain sect of Judaizers, those who followed the Jewish laws... They either came into the area or they were already there because we know from the historical account in Acts that one of Paul's major techniques in any city he would go to is where would he go first to preach the gospel? He'd go to the synagogue. So he may have gone to the synagogue at Lystra and Iconium and Deirdre, those areas in the southern Galatian region. He may have gone to the synagogue. The Spirit of God opened up hearts and the church formed. So we're not sure whether Judaizers had come in or whether Judaizers were actually there to start with and then they just imposed rules upon what it meant to be saved. But whatever way it is, Paul's audience when he's working through these arguments is twofold. He's talking to the Galatian believers and he's also talking to those who are propagating a false gospel. And they may be one and the same in this instance. So that's where we are historically. And this morning we're going to look at uh, chapter 4, verses 8 through to the end of the chapter. So please open your Bibles and we'll just read uh, the first paragraph. Verse 8 of chapter 4. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn again, back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I have laboured over you in vain. You can see by these first few verses, Paul's tone changes. He's moved from the position of arguing the case to a position of appeal. Paul has a huge pastoral heart for these people. He has a heart that is... Crying out because he sees the, the falseness of what is being taught. And he starts crying out to them. He says, look, you know your former position. You know, you, you were under sin. You were enslaved. You did not know God. Every time we come across that particular saying in the New Testament, it, it, it's a clear reference to the fact that he is describing your position before Christ. Especially in relation to Gentile believers or non-believers in the state. He's saying, look, you had no knowledge of God. You did not know him. You were quite happily walking along in your way of life with no knowledge of God. And you're enslaved by your circumstance, you're enslaved by your culture, you're enslaved by sin. That's your past. But then see the wonderful contrast starting in verse 9. But now. I love it every time I see in scripture those two words because it's a a significant contrast. And he goes on to explain, but now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. These are wonderful statements. The original language, the, the word there for know and for knowing are two distinct, different words. We translate them know and knowing, so we have a similar sort of uh, term there. But the second one, to be known by God, has a sense of incredible intimate relationship. Or well, some would say, even election. Humans do indeed come to know God, but they do so only because God first determines to know us in Christ. And this is a sense in which he's, he's driving here. He's saying, you are deeply knowing by God. You have this incredible intimate relationship. He just previously explained that. You are sons and heirs. You can cry out to God in a way now that says, Abba, Father, which is an incredible intimate term. And he's just restating it here. Your past experience, you did not know God, but you now know God and you have this incredible intimate relationship. And then he hammers him once again, so even knowing that, why, why, why do you turn back to the weak and worthless principle? Why do you want to become slaves or enslaved once more? Why do you want to try and obtain your salvation by doing, doing, doing? You know, the weakless and worthless elementary principles, we discussed that last week. It was mentioned uh, at the start of chapter 4, what they may have been. You have two indications going back to chapter 3 where... In verse 22 it says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. That's one of the weak and elementary principles of the world that we're all under sin. And secondly, you've got the whole process of what the law does. It's weakless. It cannot save. It, It cannot justify. Probably a better way of translating weak and worthless would be, especially the word worthless would be lacking in spiritual worth. So you turn back back again to the weak and you are lacking in spiritual worth returning to the elementary principles of the world. And you can just see this aged apostle pulling his hair out. He's like, why, why, why are you listening to these folks who are distorting the gospel? Why are you returning to that? Why are you trying to live by the flesh, as he'll explain a little bit later on? He doesn't line up particular uh, observances that are concerning him here. He gives a pretty broad brushstroke. He said, you're doing this by observing days, months, seasons and years probably a reference to the Jewish festivals that you would do if you were uh, a Jew. But he's not really interested in, in um, explaining that, he just gives it a general reference because the issue is they were doing these things when they are trying to add to their salvation. And then he gives just a final plea. Have I labored for you in vain? There's the time I spent with you, the time I've counseled you, the time I've had meals with you, the time I've taught you about what the gospel of grace is. Because remember, Paul <laughs> was the Pharisee of Pharisees. Remember in his experience, he knew what it was to be transformed by the grace of God. He even states elsewhere in Scripture that, you know, according to the law, I was the most upright. That's a pretty arrogant sort of statement, but it's a true statement. That's where he was. If there was anything to be had by keeping the law, Paul would have had it. He says, I've labored to teach you that it's by God's grace and grace alone that we have freedom in Christ. So what do we learn from this here? I think one of the things I learned as I've read through these uh, four verses is that External rules and restrictions are an indication of immaturity. This church was a young church. It was a year or so into its growth. They had returned quickly back to observance of rules and wrongly thought that by doing so they were receiving salvation or justification. That's a sign of immaturity. reverting to the law for them was regressing in their walk of faith. You say, why so? You know why? Because then your walk in faith becomes all about you. It becomes all about doing. You become the centre of the effort and not the grace of God. Now folks, when we become the centre of the effort it results in works of the flesh. So for us, how does this relate to? I know this was written to a church in a historical time and that was addressing an issue. But for us today, what church practices do we elevate above the gospel and impose upon others? This is the critical issue you see here because what had happened here is these Jewish believers who had become saved inside this environment or had come in from some other point of view, they were starting to impose rules and regulations upon the Galatian believers. They're saying, hey, well, you can't really be saved unless you're doing this, 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 and this. It is a lie. An absolute lie. And Paul's strength of his argument, and you can see in his words the vermin of his argument is the fact that he hates that. He says, do not do that. Do not impose upon others what you think is right. And as we go through the book of Galatians, especially as we get into chapters 5 and 6, you will see this um, reiterated time and time and time again. But I come back to the question, what do we impose upon one another? That's not gospel-centered. What do we elevate above the pure gospel that... We try and use to shape one another to be like Christ, and, and the fact is not. It's just a work. Um, I could give an example, I'll give some examples, and I don't mean to offend anybody in here. That's not my role. But I'm going to give some examples of what we can do to impose things upon others. You could, we know, just pure impositions of attendance to certain events. Uh, We could add to the gospel things that are in the gospel. Uh, For instance, I'll use, and this is not selective, I'll just use this because I've been reading about it recently, The creation debate. I don't know where your view is on the creation debate, but when you go across the line and impose the theology of creation upon the gospel, you're adding to the gospel. we may impose certain dress standards certain codes certain things we don't drink spit or chew tobacco from the southern baptist environment we don't dance we definitely don't do that we may impose all these rules and say well this is what you must you must not do these things to if you're a christian it's a lie. It's by faith in Jesus Christ and grace alone. Faith in Jesus Christ and grace alone. You're set free. You're no longer enslaved by the bondage of the law. And sure, there's responsibilities being set, being set free and we will discuss those as we go through this book. It's not an open-ended license to continue sinning. But the reality is, your salvation is based on grace alone. And that's where it sits. So please don't impose rules upon people in the, in the, um, under nature of, I want you to be a better Christian. Let the Spirit of God do that in a person's life. Because that's the convicting power of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God sets you free to have a life that is full and open and under His grace. Let's continue. Let's read um, verse 12 through to verse 20. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it's because of the bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And through my condition uh, was a trial to you. You did not scorn and despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no purpose. They want to shut you out, you may, that you may make much of them. There's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I'm perplexed about you. Can you see Paul's pastoral heart here to this people? He's lamenting with them. What you see here is the first imperative used in the book of Galatians. Uh, Imperative means a command. The first command he really gives them in, in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. Become there is a command. Become as I am. He uses this language often. Paul, he um, you know, he says imitate me quite often through his letters. And this is just another way he has done it here. He says, look, you've seen me. I was a Judaizer. I was involved in Judaism. Now I'm set free by the gospel of grace. In the same way that that's occurred to me, you become like I am. Uh, We see also through these verses, and I'll make very little comment on that, that Paul's purpose and occasion for being in Galatia was because of some physical ailment. Not sure what that is, whether it relates to the thorn in the flesh we hear of in Corinthians, may well do, but we're not really sure. But the reality is the kindness of these people during his Infirmity was such a thing that it deeply impacted him. And that's what he says here. You he treated me as, as an angel. You treated me as Christ. You loved me. You had compassion on me. You cared for me. So he's making a deeply personal appeal to these folks. Verse 16 is significant. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? That uh, verb there probably would be better rendered. Have I become your enemy by proclaiming the truth? Proclaiming it. Have I been your enemy by telling you the truth of the gospel? And we'd hope that the answer is no, because these are all rhetorical questions. He uses many rhetorical questions through this argument, as we've discovered already. And then he then he shows the desire of the Judaizers. He doesn't even name them, but in verse seven he says, "They make much of you, but for no purpose. They want to shut you out. Why? So that they may make much, so that you may make much of them." The man said it approached. He said, look, the reason that these Judaizers are saying, hey, look, uh, do all these rules, have all these fences around your salvation, have all these things that you've got to live by, is so that they can glory in your ability to be obedient to what they have said. It's a roundabout way of saying it. That's what he's driving. He said, well, that's just stupid. Because when that happens, you put the grace of God to one side. You put the work of the Spirit in a person's life to one side. And then you see his his appeal in verses 19 and 20, he even sort of apologizes that, look, I, I know what I'm writing to you sounds really, really agitated. But he said, look, if I was with you, I'd be a lot softer in my tone. If I was with you there, I would I would just present this in the way that we are friends because we are. And then he ends this appeal. Verse 21 to 31, let's read this together. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, but she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she sorry, I've lost my place. but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written: "Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, Break forth and cry aloud, you have not in labor." For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and his son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Who understands what that's all about? Come, not be honest here. It's a fairly complex argument, isn't it? You need to have a fairly good understanding of the Old Testament especially two sons in the Old Testament one called Isaac and one called Ishmael. To understand that you'd read um, Genesis 16 where you would see Abraham the man of promise tried to force the promise somewhat. So he was getting old and, and Sarah said to Abraham look I'm never going to have kids, I'm never going to have children Um, take my servant here, Hagar, sleep with her and produce an heir. You know what Abraham did? He listened to his wife. Scripture says that quite importantly, he said. And Abraham listened to his wife. Question, should have Abraham listened to his wife? Answer, no. (laughs) Not in this instance, but he did. And born from Hagar was Ishmael. And you'll read that from that point in time when Ishmael was born to Hagar, there was nothing but animosity between Sarah and Hagar. And it culminates in twenty-one, uh, chapter 21 where they're celebrating Isaac's birth. Now Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac came from the very loins of Sarah and Abraham, the son of promise. And uh, they were celebrating his birth and they sent Ishmael away. Read about it, Genesis chapter 16 and 21. And this frames this whole allegory. Now allegory is something interesting. It's not used often in scripture to interpret stuff. It is here, and probably once else in the New Testament, uh, 1 Corinthians 9.9. 9. How do we know that? Because it says so. Verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. What does it mean to interpret something allegorically? You take a historical event and you say, well this is a picture of something that is going to happen or is happening now. They're unrelated terms in a lot of ways, but there are some related principles undergoing there. Now, allegory by way of example is probably not a uh, common way of interpreting scripture. I would hope that most of us in this room would want to interpret scripture from a historical, literal, grammatical perspective. That means we look at the historical content, we look at the literal language and the the semantics of that, and um, we base our interpretation upon that. If you start allegorizing Scripture, you get in trouble. And this hasn't been, this is a problem that's gone through the ages. But in this case, the Scripture says this is an allegory, so we've got to try and understand it in that terms. So that's what we're going to do. It is very simply. So he's looking at the present, the children of promise. Abraham has two sons. He has one son of a slave woman, Ishmael. He has one son of a free woman, Isaac. One is born according to the flesh, so we just explained. He 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 listened to his wife and he lay with Hagar, and this son was a born according to the flesh but one was born according to the promise and the promise God said to Abraham in Genesis 17 go outside look up at the stars the stars you see I will make you a nation greater than the stars you can see through your own loins and he did and that was through the son of promise Isaac at the age of 99 and 90 a miracle In this allegory, we have two covenants being talked about. We have a covenant at Sinai, and we have the new covenant. Hagar was born in slavery, born under the covenant of Sinai, born under the law, born under the flesh. Sarah was born in freedom. Sinai covenant was present Jerusalem, as explained in this text here. New covenant was upper Jerusalem. It's interesting that uh, in verse 27 we have a, a, a direct quote from Isaiah 54, which talks about God is going to be faithful to his promise and, and the nation in Jerusalem will rejoice because of his faithfulness. Under the two covenants, one set of children are enslaved and the other set of children are free. So what does this mean from an application perspective? How do we apply this? How would the Galatians to apply it, and what does this actually mean? Well, I think it's, this is where he's driving here. You're not like Ishmael. You're not children of slavery. You're not like Ishmael. You're not the persecutor. And you're not like Ishmael, who is rejected by God. But you are like Isaac. You're a child of promise, or you're children of promise. You're like Isaac. You are persecuted by the other son. And you're like Isaac. You will inherit the promise. So this is where he's taken the argument. He's used those six or seven arguments from the law to show that grace is superior to the law. He now is appealing to the Galatians, deep personal appeals. He stated that don't be swayed by doing, be swayed by God's grace. Spiritual maturity is always going to be measured by Christ being formed in you, not by zealous law-keeping, but the truth of the gospel. And what I reckon he's really driving at here is he's saying, are you allowing the Spirit of God to transform you by the truth of the gospel. Because it's evident, it's not. It's evident because you're more important in lining up and being zealous towards these Judaizers. Another way of putting it, he's saying, is your Christian walk aligned to please men and traditions or aligned to be with the gospel? And then he says at the end here, you can rest in the security of the fact that you are a recipient of the unchangeable covenant with God. You can rest in that. You are a child of promise. So therefore, don't be fooled by slavery. You're set free, and Christ has done that. And that's it for you and I too, folks. Christ's work on the cross has set us free. We're children of grace. We're saved by grace, let's live by grace. We are people of promise. We're set free. What a wonderful position to be in. Let's live like it. Let's live every day so the grace of God shapes and molds you. The truth of the gospel shapes and molds you. that's the appeal. And this is significant. Thanks, music team.